Hey guys, I want to welcome you to the weekly Wednesday for the Financial Freedom Newsletter, where every week, every Wednesday, we delve into something inspirational, motivational, something excerpt taken from the Financial Freedom Weekly Newsletter. Wherever you are, if you're listening on Spotify, on iTunes, Google, be sure to click the like, subscribe, share, comment. Without ado, let's get into the show. Hey guys, welcome to this week's podcast episode for the Financial Freedom Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Christopher Liu, and I'm really happy to introduce our guest today, Roy Osing. And what's fascinating is today's conversation is going to be a conversation about entrepreneurship. His story is defined in one word, breakaway, essentially maverick, doing unconventional, non-traditional things, which I love. Uh, want to bring this to the audience. Hopefully you get inspired, create a form of authentic, genuine conversation. So uh, Roy, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, tell uh, people, you know, we met through Podmatch and tell people your journey, your story and how you got started. Well, basically uh, in a word, I guess uh, I was very fortunate to be asked to undertake a challenge to to build an internet company um, out of a telco environment, which was really an interesting cultural challenge to say the least. <laughs> and um, yeah, I get goosebumps when I think about this because we actually built the business to a billion in annual sales from an early stage. And I, I love the fact that you use the word breakaway because that's me all over audacious and breakaway. We did it by quite frankly, not following traditional approaches to uh, uh, to the business. And that's what really is quite exciting for me. Yeah, I love that. And, um, you know, what's what's interesting is, um, you know, especially in these days, in the past, you had to conform. And if you didn't conform, you were essentially screwed. But now after COVID, if you are not different and you do not think differently, you're going to be screwed because you know, these types of models and thinking are being up. And tell us about, so you basically, you took a startup to a billion in sales and you're an entrepreneur. Tell, uh, you have this idea of um, audacious unheard. What What is that? Well, it's my way of describing uh, stepping out of the box and creating a new box to play in. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about, well, you got to get it out of the box. I say, no, you you really have to go a little further than that. You got to create a new box that is more relevant than the old box and then play in that one. And so for me, it was all about as a leader, trying to do things that lit fires in people, right? Not traditional stuff. But like, I'll give you an example. Um, one of my uh, most successful programs, I called cut, uh, uh, Plan Z Internal Environment in the organization. And that was just about getting rid of the grunge and the bureaucracy and the rules, et cetera, that impede execution. Because the only way to, to significantly grow anything is you got to get your head out of the planning mode and get it into the execution mode. Mm -hmm. And so I was the practical execution dude. And you know what? Seriously, textbooks and so they didn't help me at all. I mean, they're all based on theoretical approaches to a world that, that didn't welcome them, quite frankly. And so I had to build them own. So built built my own. And so under Cleansy internal environment, we had this one program called Cut the Crap. 
I got a lot of trouble by calling it cut the crap because people said, oh, Roy, presidents shouldn't talk like that. And I said, okay, I'll call it cut the stupid things we do. What would you prefer? <laughs> I mean, the reality is everybody knows what crap is in an organization. It's the stuff that gets in the way of people doing their jobs. Okay, so what I tended to do is have fun with simple things that were strategically critical and get people's fires in their guts lit so that they would actually help explore and find solutions to those things. So that, that was kind of like what I did. I'd find little things uh, like that and get people all charged up, start implementing them. And over time, you could see, you know, and I mean, people have said to me, well, you know, have you done a quantitative analysis to, to show exactly what part of the billion you got from that, that program? And I said, don't be ridiculous. Of course I haven't. What I do know is, right, the sum effect of all of these little things that people love to do helped us get to a billion. That's all I know. And that's all I want to know. And so that's the kind of thing that I did. Practical things that people people were surprised over, over the simplicity because these were not complicated things, right? Like, unfortunately, today we're taught that the good stuff is complicated. Okay, <laughs> academics promulgate that kind of stuff. And it's all bull, quite frankly. In a business, it doesn't work. Uh, so, so well said. Uh, you know, one question I have is, uh, what is? Um, it seems like corporate culture rewards uh, failure, and it kind of, and basically, and when you when an entrepreneur butts head with you know the corporate environment, it's like uh, it's like they reward they reward the uh, just people doing stupid things for lack of a better term. So, so why is that? <laughs> I don't know. It, it's because <laughs> I think the frame of reference is, is, uh, is so different. Like in a large corporation, frame of reference is generally to mitigate risk. Okay. Well, you can't have experimentation and entrepreneurship if your mindset is to mitigate risk. The reality is you cannot. If you want to be successful and you want to grow, you can't mitigate risk. Right, accommodating and adjusting, embodying the spirit of risk is at the heart of, of, of building a company that is highly performing. And so you get a lot of these, I would call stoic, you know, kind of organizations that unfortunately believe that they can keep doing things the way that they've always done, right, without uh, taking on new things and doing business in a different way. And so, you know, entrepreneurs run right into that. But entrepreneurs themselves have got a lot of issues, okay? Like I, I work a lot with CEOs of startups and I got to tell you, they are influenced by academia. They're influenced by conformance requirements and all that kind of stuff. So it's not just, it's not just the large organizations that fall victim to the textbook is the way I would describe it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like so interesting. It's, um, uh, but I think, you know, in general, people are waking up to this idea where it's just like, you know, the old ways of is just not working. And um, you talk about a clap trap. What and why? <laughs> what is that? And why do most organizations use it? Yeah, I'm glad you raised that because I <laughs> want to go back to the statement that organizations are waking up. I will give you a contrarian view on that. <laughs> and it's all about differentiation. OK, which for me is the key thing. The whole notion behind my work, be different or be dead is differentiated. And I think in spite of the fact that the world is, is, has never been more competitive, that customers have never been more powerful, the technology has never changed so quickly, that regulations have never been so power and control oriented. In spite of all of that, 
my view is that organizations are still doing a very mediocre job at differentiating themselves from the competition. Okay. And one of the reasons for that is that they use words, claptrap words, like we're better, we're the best, right? We're number one, we're the market leaders. We provide the most incredible customer service. You know, quite frankly, all of those are narcissistic expressions that they use to describe what they wish they could be. And because in reality, very few are. And so you, you, get, you get this lethargy in the market where customers are left on their own to decide who to do business with. So the businesses, okay, are falling short of what I would call their mandate, which is to make it clear in granular terms why people should do business with them and nobody else. So I had to create my own solution, okay? A very simple notion called the only statement. Okay, the only statement cuts through the claptrap and it says, we are the only ones who, not better, not best, not more, well, we're the only ones who. Now, the interesting thing about that approach is, and people, I mean, people's imagination when I talk to them about it is captured by the notion, right? It's binary. It either exists or it doesn't exist. You can observe it, you can prove it, or you can disprove it, right? And so it's a very powerful tool that what I'm, I'm trying to advocate as being one that plays into the problems associated with claptrap and aspirations. Okay, I mean, aspirations are equally as difficult, you know, like we're in business to save the home planet. Okay, <laughs> if that's your competitive claim, boy, are you ever giving customers a good reason why they should do business with you and nobody else? I'm not saying that that's not important value for an organization to have, but you don't trot that out and say, that's why you should buy from me because everybody says that. Okay, all you're doing is you're joining the herd of commonness and sameness, and that's not, not adding any value to the conversation. So I want people to really go check out the only statement and try it. Okay, it's, it's really, it's easy to talk about. It's difficult to do because a lot of people will say to me, Roy, I'm not special about anything. There's nothing special about me. And I think, whoa, okay, we got some work to do here. And that's what I do with clients. I help them find their special juice in the market, okay, which is built around the only statement. And I got to tell you, I'm the only one that does that. Nobody else does this stuff. Just me. I'm the only one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because you say uh, if you're not the only one who does what you do, you're no one. And talking about differentiation, differentiating for success. Um, as a CMO, what did you do to make your marketing and sales teams remarkable? Well, I think the first thing that, that I try to do is, is make them one. Okay. In other words, give them a common view of, of saying like, you know, I don't really, I'm not really going to, going to focus on your specific discipline. Okay. And your specific function. I want you guys to be working together to, to achieve a common end and I'm going to hold you accountable. And so the performance planning piece was huge in that respect because, you know, I mean, there's always this marketing sales thing going on, right? Like the sales guys say, well, the marketing guys didn't give me the collateral and the marketing guys are saying, well, the sales guys don't execute. And so somehow, and so I had common report cards set up and the whole performance planning system was based on that. I didn't, I didn't evaluate the marketing people as marketing people. I didn't evaluate the salespeople as salespeople. I, I evaluated them as one. Now, the interesting thing was that over time they got, they, first of all, they hated it <laughs> going in. They hated it, right? They didn't want to be part of the marketing thing. And stuff. But I, over time, they got to understand what that meant. 
And the only reason I did it was because it aided in execution. And I want to make the point again, everything I did was all about execution because execution drove performance. And that's what I was all about. I didn't do things because I thought they were cool sounding. I did them because I believed that they would enhance execution. So bringing sales and marketing together was a huge undertaking and I think a major contribution. The other thing that I just want to mention, because it's it's different, people don't talk about it this way, is I shifted the mindset away from satisfying needs, okay, to delivering what people craved. So the whole notion of cravings, okay, is audacious, right? Everybody talks about needs and satisfy, even, even exceeding expectations is now kind of like common nomenclature and the way people call. I switched that up. I talk about cravings, what people coveted, what they lusted for, what they craved. And the reason for that, very, very simple, is first of all, nobody talks that way. And secondly, nobody plays in that space. And so the competition in the cravings business is virtually nil. And therefore, you've got a lot more freedom in price, right? And so if you're looking for opportunities to increase margin, you want to go to figure out what, what people crave. Now, what people crave is a really simple thing. It goes back to as individuals, you know, because most of us have our needs satisfied anyways, right? In which case, if you want to play that game, you're going to be into price competition, which doesn't really satisfy anybody except customers. But the cravings piece is a learning piece in terms of what, what individuals really, really want, right? At the end of the day, and it, it's not simple things. It's like it gets down to behavioral things. Like I'm treated as a human being, Okay. Okay, I mean, the, the, the person uh, treats me with dignity, stuff like that, which I try and make strategic. Okay, dignity, self-worth are strategic concepts that organizations need to understand how to play into if, in fact, they're ever to achieve a sustainable com competitive advantage. And I tried to do that with the marketing and sales guys. Uh, it was a long run, and I, I have to admit, I, I, I didn't get 100% of what it what I wanted to achieve done because I, I ended up leaving and pursuing other things. But the notion that I have around cravings is something that I work with particularly small businesses in because they're closer to the customer and, and they find it a little easier. Okay. To first of all, identify what people crave by just having a conversation and then shifting their organization to play into that. It's fun. It really is gratifying to be there. Mm, yeah. You know, we come, we're come, we're come, coming to the end of this conversation. But um, one thing is, uh, what do you? I was recently watching a an interview with Ken Griffin, you know, about career, and was some of it was just so you know priceless. But what are your ideas of what are the biggest mistakes people make in their career? Yeah, they 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 don't differentiate themselves. Okay, like look at my world is differentiate, differentiate, differentiate. I mean, I was asked the other day, what's the, what's the three biggest challenges in business? And I said, differentiate, differentiate, and differentiate. When it comes to careers, it's the same thing. People don't, they don't create an only statement for themselves. So let me put it to you that way. In other words, you know, they, they, they apply common methodologies for career development. And if everybody does that, they're all the same. You know, my eyes would glaze over, quite frankly, when I would ask somebody, why should I pick you and nobody else? And what I got back was, well, I have great conflict management skills. I've got, I really love, well, I really love dealing with people. Everybody says that. Okay. So for you people out there who want success in a career, you need to get back to basic. What makes you special? 
And if the only person in the world knows you're special is your mom, you're in trouble. And in, you know, kind of closing is what does it take to be an audacious leader and how can people contact you, follow you, check out your work, etc.? Yeah, so I mean, I've there's a lot of of uh, content around this on my website be different or be dead.com. So people can go there. I blog every week on every aspect of audaciousness. And I really dig into my latest book, which is uh, Audacious Unheard of Ways I Took a Startup to a Billion. So there's a lot of content there. You can check that out. You can check the page on, on the seven books that I've written, which is fundamentally around this notion, be different or be dead. And people can e email me. I don't mind. My email address is roy.osing at gmail.com. And I'm happy to have a conversation around that. But in four words, okay, if you want to be an audacious leader, the first thing you have to do is you have to be different. The second thing you have to do is put the planning book down and start to focus on execution. The third thing you have to do is serve people. Lead by serving around. Ask the question, how can I help? And the fourth thing you have to do is do it yourself. There are certain things you should not be delegating as a leader. Okay, You have to take those on yourself, put your own fingerprint on the organization and get it done. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I love this uh, idea of um, executing and because it's kind of like this, um, there's iterations and you're, the more you iterate, the faster you can learn and improve. Yeah, absolutely. It's not, it's not an intellectual exercise. I mean, the intelligence can go so far, okay, but it turns into nothing unless you can execute it through people that love what you're doing. It's yeah. worth nothing. I used to say to people, if, if I can't execute the idea, I don't want to talk about it because it's worthless. Yeah. In other words, it doesn't, I don't get any satisfaction out of, out of massaging my mind. I get satisfaction out of seeing things executed and getting performance that's superb. Well said. And for all the audience out there, let's thank Roy for a fantastic conversation. I love this idea of differentiating and being in a class of one. And um, all of Roy's resources will be in the links and show notes. And with that, thanks so much for coming onto the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. listening if you liked it be sure to like comment share subscribe we're on everywhere spotify itunes google amazon audible and without much ado be sure to thank this show's sponsors and we'll see you next week